Chapter 6 of Hindu Tales or The Adventures of Ten Princes by Dandan Translated by P. W. Jacob This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Siddharth Chapter 6 Adventures of Apaharavarma My Lord, when you had gone away with the Brahman and we were unable to find you, I wandered about searching for you like the rest of your friends. One day I heard by chance of a very famous Muni living in a forest on the banks of the Ganga, not far from Champa, who was said to have supernatural knowledge of past and future events. Hoping to obtain some information about you, I determined to seek him out, and accordingly came here for that purpose. Having found the way to his dwelling, I saw there a miserable-looking man, very unlike the holy devotee whom I had pictured to myself. Sitting down, however, beside this person, I said, I have come a long way to consult the celebrated Rishi, Marichi. Having heard that he is possessed of very wonderful knowledge, can you tell me where to find him? Deeply sighing, he answered, There was not long ago such a person in this place, but he is changed. He is no longer what he was. How can that be? I asked. One day, he replied, while that Muni was engaged in prayer and meditation, he was interrupted by the sudden arrival of a famous actress and dancer called Kama Manjari, who, with disheveled hair and eyes full of tears, threw herself at his feet. Before he had time to ask the meaning of this, a confused crowd of her companions came up, beheaded an old woman, the mother of Kama Manjari, apparently in great agitation and distress. When they were all a little quieted, he asked the girl the meaning of her tears, and for what purpose she had come to him. She answered, apparently with great respect and bashfulness, O reverend sir, I have heard of your great wisdom, and your kindness to those who are willing to give up the pleasures of this world for the sake of the next. I am tired of the disgraceful life I am leading and wish to renounce it. Upon this, her mother, with loose grey hairs touching the crown, interrupted her and said, Worthy sir, this daughter of mine would make it appear that I am to blame, but indeed I have done my duty, and have carefully prepared her for that profession for which by birth she was intended. From earliest childhood I have bestowed the greatest care upon her, doing everything in my power to promote her health and beauty. As soon as she was old enough, I had her carefully instructed in the arts of dancing, acting, playing on musical instruments, singing, painting, preparing perfumes and flowers, in writing and conversation, and even to some extent in grammar, logic and philosophy. She was taught to play various games with skill and dexterity, and how to dress well, and show herself off to the greatest advantage in public. I hired persons to go about praising her skill and beauty, and to applaud her when she performed in public, and I did many other things to promote her success and to secure for her liberal remuneration. Yet after all the time, trouble and money which I had spent upon her, just when I was beginning to reap the fruit of my labors, the ungrateful girl has fallen in love with a stranger, a young Brahman, with her property and wishes to marry him and give up her profession. Notwithstanding all my entreaties and representations of the poverty and distress, to which all her family will be reduced if she persists in her purpose, and because I oppose this marriage, 
She declares that she will renounce the world and become a devotee. The Muni compassionately said to the girl, You will never be able to endure the hardship of such a life as you propose to lead, a life so different from that to which you have been accustomed. Heaven may be attained by all who duly perform the duties of their station. Take my advice, then. Give up all thoughts of an undertaking which you will never accomplish. Comply with your mother's wishes, return with her, and be content with that way of life in which you have been brought up. With many tears she replied, If you will not receive me, I will put an end to my wretched life. Finding her so determined, the Muni, after some reflection, said to the mother and her companions, Go away for the present. Come back after a few days. I will give her good advice. And you will no doubt find her tired of living here and quite ready to return. Thereupon they all went away, and she was left alone with the Muni. At first she kept at a distance from him, taking care not to interrupt him in his meditations, but waiting on him unobtrusively rendering him many little services, watering his favorite trees, and gathering sacred grass and flowers for offerings to the gods. Then as he became more accustomed to her, she would amuse him with songs and dances, and at last begin to sit near him and talk of the pleasures of love. One day, as if in all simplicity, she said, Surely people are very wrong in reckoning virtue, wealth, and pleasure as the three great objects of life. Tell me, he answered, how far do you regard virtue as superior to the other two? A very wise man like you, she replied, can hardly learn anything from an ignorant woman like me, but since you ask, I will tell you what I think. There is no real acquisition of happiness or wealth without virtue, but the latter is quite independent of the other two. Without it, a man is nothing, but if he fully possesses it, he is so purified by it that he may indulge in pleasures occasionally, and any sin connected with them will no more adhere to him than dust to a cloud. Look at all the stories of the armors of the gods. Are they less worshipped on that account? I think, therefore, that virtue is a hundred times superior to the other two. With many such specious arguments as these, and by her winning ways, she contrived to make him madly in love so that, forgetting all his religious duties and former austerities, he thought only how to please her. When she perceived this, she said to him, Let us stay no longer in the forest, but go to my house in the town, where we can have many enjoyments. Utterly infatuated, he was ready to do her bidding, and she, having procured a covered carriage, took him in the evening to her own house. The next day there was a great festival at which the king was accustomed to appear in public and converse familiarly with his subjects. On such occasions he would often be surrounded by actresses and dancing girls. On that day Kama Manjari persuaded the Muni to put on a gay dress and accompany her to the park where the festival was held, and he, thinking only of her and miserable if she were away from him even for a short time, consented to go. On the arrival there, she walked with him towards the king, who, seeing her, said with a smile, Sit down here with that reverend man, and all eyes were directed towards him. Presently one of the ladies rose up, and, making a low bysance to the king, said, My lord, I must consult myself beaten by that lady. I have lost my wager, and must now pay the penalty. 
Then a great shout of laughter arose. The king congratulated Kamavandri and presented her with handsome ornaments. After this, she walked away with astonished Muni, followed by a great crowd shouting applause. Before reaching her own house, she turned round to him with a low obeisance and said, Reverend Sir, you have favoured me with your company a long time. It will be well for you to attend now to your own affairs. Not having in his eyes yet opened, he started as if thunderstruck and said, My dear, what does all this mean? What has become of the great love which you professed for me? She smilingly answered, I will explain it all. One day, that lady whom you saw in the park had a dispute with me as to which was the most attractive. At last she said, You boast of your powers. Forsooth, go and try them on Marici. If you can persuade him to accompany you here, then indeed you may triumph. I will acknowledge myself your inferior. This was the reason of my coming to you. The trick has been successful. I have won my wager and have now no further occasion for you. Bowed down by shame and remorse, the unhappy man slunk back to his hermitage, miserable and degraded, bitterly lamenting his folly and infatuation, but resolved to atone for it by deep repentance and severe penance. I am that wretched man, you see, therefore that I am now quite unable to assist you. But do not go away, remain in Champa. After a time, I shall recover my former power. While he was telling me the sad story, the sun set, and I remained with him that night. The next morning at sunrise, I took leave of him and walked towards the city. On my way thither, as I passed above this monastery, I was struck by the appearance of a man sitting at the side of the road near it. He was extraordinarily ugly, his body naked, with the exception of a rack round his waist, and his face so covered with dirt that the tears he was shedding left furrows as they rolled down his cheeks. Moved by compassion, I sat down near him and inquired the reason for his distress, at the same time adding, If it is a secret, I do not wish to intrude upon you. My misfortunes are well known, he answered. I have no objection to telling you if you wish to hear them. Then he began, My name is Vasupalika, but from my ugliness I am generally known as Virupaka, the deformed. I am the son of a man of some importance here, who left me a large fortune. Among my acquaintance there was a person called Sundarka, remarkably handsome but poor. Between us two, some mischievous persons strove to excite our rivalry, pitting my money against his beauty and accomplishments. One day, in a large assembly, having got up a dispute between us, they said, It is not beauty or wealth, but the approbation of the ladies which stamps the worth of a man. Therefore, let the famous actress, Kama Manjari, decide between you, and agree that she shall say who is the best man. To this we both assented, and she, having been previously prepared for the part which she was to perform, was brought into the room, and passing by my rival with scorn, sat down by my side, and taking a garland from her own head, placed it on mine. Greatly flattered and delighted by this preference, and blinded by a mad love for her, which I had not ventured to express, I most readily gave up myself to her seductions 
and in a very short time she obtained such an influence over me that everything I possessed was at her disposal. Before long, she had so plundered me and led me into such extravagance that I was reduced to the most abject poverty and had nothing I could call my own but this miserable drag which you now see me wear. Cast off by her, blamed and reproached by the elder men, laughed at and despised by those who had been my companions in prosperity, I knew not where to turn, and as a last resource I entered this Buddhist monastery, where I obtained a bare subsistence, distressed by the cutting off of my long hair, and by numerous restrictions as to eating, drinking and sleeping, like a newly caught elephant, and hearing every day abuse of those gods whom I used to worship, filled with remorse for my departure from the religion of my ancestors, I am utterly miserable and only wish for death. Having heard this pitiable story, I did what I could to comfort him and said, Do not despair. I have heard already of that wicked woman and think I shall be able to find some means of making her restore to you a part at least of your property. After leaving him, I went into the city and finding from popular report that it was full of rich misers, I resolved to bring them to their proper condition by taking away that useless wealth. Occupied by this thought, I went into a gaming house where I was much interested and amused by watching the players and observing their tricks, the sleight of hand, their bullying or cringing behavior to each other, the reckless profusion of the winners, the muttering despair of those who had lost. While overlooking a game of chess, I smiled and made some remark about a bad move of one of the players, upon which his opponent, turning to me with a sneer, said, No doubt. You think yourself very clear, but wait till I have finished off this stupid fellow, and I will play you for any stake you like. When the game was over, accepting his challenge, I sat down to play and won altogether 16,000 dinars. Half of this sum I kept for myself and half I divided between the gaming housekeeper and the players who were present. The latter were loud in praise of my generosity and of the skill which I had shown in beating that poster. The former asked me to dine with him, and I often went to his house and became very intimate with him, and obtained from him much information, especially such as had reference to my purpose. One very dark night, fully directed by him, I set out, determined on robbery, equipped with a dark dress, a short sword, a spade, a crowbar, a pair of princes, a wooden man's head, a magic candle, a rope and crappling iron, a box with a bee in it, and some other implements. Selecting a house where I knew there was much money, I made a hole in the wall, and finding all quiet, enlarged it, entered boldly, and carried off much booty. As I was returning, looking cautiously about me, I came suddenly upon a young woman who was much alarmed at seeing me. Perceiving her agitation, I spoke to her kindly and assured her that I would much rather assist than injure her. Encouraged by my words, she told me her story. My name is Kulapalika. 
I am the daughter of a rich merchant in this city, and was from childhood engaged to the son of another rich man named Dhanamitra. He, however, being of a very generous disposition, when he had succeeded to his father's property, was preyed on by pretended friends and reduced to comparative poverty. Seeing this, my father refused to consent to our marriage, and in spite of my reluctance, is determined to give me to a rich man called Arthapati. To escape this marriage, I have slipped out from my home by a secret passage, rarely used, and am going to the house of my lover, who is expecting me, and will take me away to some other country. Pray, do not detain me, but accept this. So saying, she put one of her ornaments into my hand. I did not refuse it but walked by her side, intending to escort her to her destination. We had, however, only gone a few steps, when I saw coming towards us, at no great distance, a large body of the citizen guard. Without losing a moment, I said to the trembling guard, Do not be alarmed. Say that I have been bitten by a serpent, and I will manage the rest. By the time they reached us, I had thrown myself on the ground, and lay as if insensible, and she stood over me, crying, on being questioned, she answered with many tears and in evident distress, My husband and I, coming from the country, lost our way and have only lately entered the city. Just now he was bitten by a serpent and is all but dead. Is there any one among you skilled and charms who can recover him? Among the guard there was chanced to be a very conceited man who had often boasted of a skill and was delighted to have an opportunity of displaying it. He stood over me while the others waited, and with many gesticulations muttered various charms supposed to be efficacious in such a case, but finding all of no avail, said at last, Ah, it is too late. The poor man is past all remedies. What a pity I did not see him sooner. Then joining his companions, who were impatient to be off, he turned to the sobbing girl and said, He was evidently fated to die. Who can prevail over fate? It is useless to lament. Nothing more can be done now. Wait a little while, and when we come back, we will remove the body. As soon as they were out of sight, I rose up, took her to the house of Thanamitra, and said to him, I met this lady just now. I have brought her safely here, and now restored the ornament which she gave me in her fright, for... Though I am a robber, I would not steal from one like her. Delighted at seeing her, he answered, Oh, sir, you have indeed rendered me a great service in bringing this dear one in safety here. Such conduct is very extraordinary in a man of your way of life, and I am quite unable to understand your motives for acting thus. At all events, I am under very great obligation to you to mind my services in future. After some further talk, I asked him, Friend, what do you now intend to do? It will be impossible, he answered, for me to live here if I marry her without her father's consent. I propose, therefore, to leave the town this very night with her. A clever man, I replied, is at home in any place. Wherever he goes, he may say, This is my country, but in travelling, many hardships must be endured hunger, thirst, fatigue, and dangers from men and wild beasts. How will this tender girl be able to bear them? You seem to be wanting in wisdom and forethought, 
in thus abandoning home and country. Take courage, be guided by me, and you shall marry her and live comfortably here. But first we must take back to her father's house. To this he consented without hesitation, and we set out at once. Guided by her, we entered through the secret passage, carried off everything of value, and got away without exciting alarm. Having hidden our booty in some old ruins, we were going home, when we fell in with some of the city guard. Fortunately, there chanced to be an elephant tied up at the side of the road. We quickly therefore unfastened the rope, mounted him, and urged him at full speed. And before the watchmen could recover from their confusion, we were out of sight. Halting the elephant close to the wall of a deserted garden, we got over it with the help of the trees growing there, escaped on the other side, and reached home undetected, where we bathed and went to bed. The next day we walked out carefully dressed, and were amused at hearing an exaggerated account of our adventures of the preceding night, which had caused much alarm and excitement in the city. I had hoped, by robbing the old man, to prevent the marriage of his daughter with Arthapati, but this hope was frustrated. For the latter was not only willing to take Kulapalika without a dowry, but even made presents to her father, and it was settled that the marriage should take place at the end of a month. Finding this to be the case, I felt that something more must be done, and having hit upon a plan which I thought would be effectual, I gave Dhanamitra directions how to act. Accordingly, a few days afterwards, he went to the king, to whom he was previously known, and having asked for a private audience, said, A very wonderful thing has happened to me, of which it seems right that your majesty should be informed. You have known me as Dhanamitra, the son of a very rich man. During my prosperity I was engaged to the daughter of a wealthy merchant, but when I was reduced to poverty, he refused his consent to our marriage, and is now about to give her to another. Driven to despair by the double loss of fortune and wife, I went into a wood near the city, intending to put an end to my wretched life. There, where in the act of cutting my throat, I was stopped by a very aged devotee who asked the cause of the rash act. Poverty and contempt, I answered. There is nothing more foolish and sinful than suicide, he replied. A man of sense will endure adversity rather than escape from it in such a manner. Wealth, when lost, may be regained in many ways, but life in none. A broken fortune may be repaired, a cut throat can never be joined again. But why should I preach to you thus? Here is a remedy for your misfortunes. This leather bag will give you abundant wealth. I have used it for assisting the deserving, but now I am old and infirm, and am not long for this world. I give it to you. Go home. If you possess anything wrongfully acquired, restore it to the right owner, and give away the rest of your property to the Brahmins and the poor. When this had been done, put away the purse carefully, and in the morning it will be found full of gold. Remember that whoever possesses it must comply with these conditions, and that it will yield treasures only to a merchant like yourself, or to an actress. With these words, he handed me the purse, and immediately disappeared. I have now brought the purse to your majesty, to know your pleasure concerning it. The king, though much astonished, believing in the story, told him to keep and enjoy it, and in answer to his entreaty promised that, 
anyone attempting to steal it should be severely punished. After this, Tanamitra, making no secret of his acquisition of the purse, disposed of all his property somewhat ostentatiously, leaving himself absolutely nothing but the clothes which he wore, and in the morning, having filled the purse with gold, the proceeds of the robbery, he showed it to his neighbors, who were fully convinced of its magic powers. The fame of the purse was thus spread about, and we were able to account for our newly acquired wealth without incurring any suspicion as to the manner of obtaining it. At this time, for reasons which will presently appear, I induced Vimartaka to enter the service of Arthapati and directed him to use all possible means to excite his master against Dhanamitra. In this he had no difficulty, for the father of Kulapalika, hearing of his sudden acquisition of wealth, did not even wait to be asked, but of his own accord renewed the former engagement and rejected Arthapati. About that time it was publicly announced that our younger sister of Kamamandiri, Ragamandiri by name, would make her first appearance as dancer and singer. Great expectations having been raised, a large number of spectators, including myself and my friend Thanamitra, were present at the performance. I was struck by her beauty and the instant she appeared on the stage, but when I heard her sweet voice and saw her graceful movements, I was perfectly enchanted and unable to take my eyes off her for a moment. The performance being ended, she withdrew, followed by the longing eyes and loud applause of the spectators, and giving, as I fancied, a significant look at me. The next day I was anxious, restless, and unable to eat, and could do nothing but roam about listlessly, or lie on the couch, thinking of her and making the excuse of a bad headache. My friend, seeing me in this state, easily guessed the reason of it, and said to me in private, I know the cause of your uneasiness and can give you good hopes. That girl is virtuous, whatever her mother and sister may be, and having watched her closely at the performance, I am convinced that she was much stuck with you. Therefore, if you are willing to make her your wife, there will be no great difficulties to overcome, as far as she is concerned, for resisting all seductions and the persuasions of her wicked mother and sister, she has declared, no man shall have me except as a wife and I must be won by merit, not by money. On the other hand, her mother and sister, fearing lest she should be withdrawn from the stage, having gone to the king and obtained, through many tears and entreaties, a decree that if any man shall take the girl, either in marriage or not, without her mother's consent, shall be put to death like a robber. Therefore, when you have gained her love, you must also obtain the mother's consent, and that can only be done by means of a large bribe. She will not listen to any other inducement. I am equal to all this, I answered. I will win the young lady and find means to satisfy the old one. And I lost no time in accomplishing my purpose. It was first necessary to make acquaintance with Kama Manjari, and to this end I found out a woman often employed by her as a messenger, and having gained her, over by bribes sent through her a number of small presents, till at last Kama Manjari was disposed in my favor, and receiving me at her house. Meanwhile, I contrived to have secret interviews with her beautiful sister, who consented to be my wife. As soon as this was settled, I said to Kama Manjari, I am desirous of obtaining your mother's consent to my marriage with your sister, who has accepted me. I know that if she ceases to perform, 
you will lose a large income and therefore offer you in return something better and more certain. Procure for me the desired permission and you shall have Thanamitra's magic purse, which I will safely steal for you. Delighted at the thought of possessing inexhaustible wealth, she agreed to this. The mother's consent was formally given, and on the day of marriage I secretly handed over the promised purse. Very soon after, Vimartaka, by my directions, in a large assembly, began to abuse and insult Thanamitra, who, as if much astonished, said, What does all this mean? Why should you annoy me? I am not aware that I have ever given you offence. He answered furiously, You purse-proud wretch, do you think I will not take my master's part? Have you not robbed him of his intended wife by bribing her father? Do you think he has no cause for anger against you? His interests are mine. I am ready to risk my life for him, and I will pay you off. Some day you shall miss that purse the source of the riches with which you are so puffed up. Saying this, he rushed out of the palace in a rage, and though nothing was done at that time, his words were not forgotten. Then Thanamitra went to the king, and declaring that he had lost the purse, mentioned his suspicion on Antapati, and the reason for it. He, having heard nothing of what his servant had said, when summoned and asked, Have you... A confidential servant named Vimartaka answered without hesitation, Certainly, he is a very trustworthy man, entirely devoted to my interest. Bring him here to me. Thus commanded, he searched everywhere for his servant, but was unable to find him, and for a good reason, for I had furnished the man with money and sent him to Ujjain to look for you. The supposed thief having disappeared, his master was put in prison till further evidence could be procured for no one but those in the secret doubted that he was the instigator of the theft. Meanwhile, Kama Manjari, anxious to make use of magic purse, proceeded to fulfill the conditions attached to its use. She went secretly to Virupaka and restored the money of which she had robbed him and gave away all her furniture, clothes and ornaments. This, however, she did so incautiously that attention was drawn to it, upon which Thanamitra went again to the king, and saying, I suspect that the actress Kama Manjari has got my purse, for though notoriously avaricious, she is giving away everything she possesses, and there must be some strong reason for such a proceeding. In consequence of this information, she was summoned to appear the next day, together with her mother, and the two women came in great alarm to consult me. I said to Kama Manjari, No doubt you are suspected of having the purse, this suspicion has arisen from your own imprudence in giving away your property so openly. I must fear that you will have to give it up, and you will be fortunate if you escape without worse consequences. But you must on no account implicate me, for then I should be put to death, all my property would be confiscated, your sister would die of grief, and you would be utterly ruined. She answered with many tears, It is indeed my own fault but you shall be safe. That niggardly wretch, Artapati, is known to be intimate with me. I will say that I received it from him, and as he is already suspected of stealing it, I shall probably be believed. To this I agreed, and the next day, when questioned, she at first denied all knowledge of that purse, then admitted having received it. 
but refused to say from whom, and at last, when threatened with torture, confessed, apparently with great reluctance, that Arthapati was the giver. And this being considered sufficient evidence against him, he was condemned to death. Then Thanamitra interceded for him, saying, A decree was formerly made by one of your ancestors that no merchant or trader should be put to death for theft. I humbly entreat, therefore, that his life may be spared. To this the king consented. The poor wretch was banished, and all his property confiscated, a portion of it being given to Kama Manjari at the earnest entreaty of Thanamitra, who got back his purse, and shortly afterward married Kulapalika. Having thus performed the promise to my friend, I increased my own wealth and kept up the reputation of the purse by going on with my robberies, and so impoverished the rich misers that some of them were glad to receive a morsel of food from the beggars to whom they had formerly refused to help, and who were now enriched by my liberality. Still no suspicion fell on me, but fate is all-powerful, and it was decreed that I should be caught at last. One night, sitting with my charming wife, and intoxicated partly with wine and partly with her sweet caresses, I was seized with madness and started up, saying, All the wealth in the city is not too much for you. I will fill the house with jewels for your sake. Then, like a furious elephant who had broken his chain, I rushed out, in spite of her remonstrances, with a drawn sword, and attacked a body of police who happened to be passing, shouting out, This is the robber. They soon overpowered me, and I fell to the ground. The shock sobered me at once, and all the horror of the situation into which I had brought myself by my folly came into my mind. I thought to myself, my intimacy with Thanamitra is well known. Suspicion will fall on him, and unless I can turn it off, he, as well as my wife, will be arrested tomorrow, and I quickly formed a plan by which they, and perhaps I myself, might be saved. But no time was to be lost, and as they were about to take me away, I called out to my wife's nurse, Sringalika, who had followed me, Be gone, old wretch, and tell that vile harlot your mistress and her paramour, Tanamitra, that she will never see her ornaments, nor he his magic purse again. I care not for life if I am revenged on those two wretches. The old woman, being remarkably quick-witted, at once understood my object in speaking thus, and very humbly accosting the police said, Worthy sir, I entreat you to wait a moment while I ask your prisoner where he has hid the ornaments of my mistress. To this they assented, and coming to me, she said, O oh, sir, your jealousy is without cause. Whatever attentions that man may have paid my mistress, she is not to blame. Now that you are taken from her, she will have no means of support, and must go on the stage again. How can she do this without her ornaments? Take compassion on her, and say, Where do you have hid them? Then, as if my anger were appeased, I answered, Why should I, who am about to die, harbor resentment? Come close, and I will whisper where I have put them. In this manner, I managed to give her a few hurried instructions. She went away with many blessings on me, and thanks to the men for their kindness, and I was taken to the king's prison. At the time, the governor of the prison was a very conceited young man named Kantaka, who had lately succeeded to the office by the death of his father, 
when I was brought in, looking at me in a very contemptuous manner, he said, So, you are the thief who has committed so many robberies. If you do not give up the stolen property, and especially the magic purse, you shall suffer every possible variety of torture before you are put to death. I answered smiling, Even though I should give up all the other stolen property, I will never let the purse go back to that wretch, Thanamitra, my greatest enemy. You may try all your tortures, you will never get this secret out of me. Finding the fear of torture to have no effect the next day, he tried promises, and so went on from day to day with alternate soothing and threatening. Meanwhile my wounds were attended and I was well fed, so that I had regained my strength when one day Sringalika made her appearance well-dressed and with cheerful countenance. To my surprise, she was allowed to speak to me in private. She said to me joyfully, Your plan has succeeded. As you directed, I went to Dhanamitra and told him from you, You must go to the king and say the magic purse so lately restored has again been stolen by one whom I regarded as a friend, a certain gambler, the husband of the actress Ragamanjari. He has taken it from spite, being jealous of his wife, to whom from kindness I have often made presents. He is now in prison for other offences, and if he is put to death immediately as he deserves, I fear that I shall never recover my purse. I pray, therefore, that he may not be executed before he has confessed where it is concealed, for he admits having taken it, but declares that he will not give it up unless his life is spared. Your friend, admiring your ingenuity, and having full confidence in your resources, immediately went to the king and obtained his request, so that your life is safe for the present. Meanwhile, with the help of gifts furnished by my mistress, I have formed an intimacy with the nurse of the princess Ambalika, and have been introduced by her to the princess, whose favor I have gained by telling her amusing stories, and whom I have induced to feel an interest in the misfortune of my mistress. One day, when I was standing near her in the gallery round the courtyard of the palace, Kantaka, having some business or other, passed through below us. Picking up a flower which the princess had dropped, I let it fall on his head, and when he looked up to see from whose, from whose hand it came, I managed to make the princess laugh at something which I said and the conceited fool, thinking that it was she who had dropped it to attract his attention, went away looking quite pleased and confused. That same evening I received a present from my mistress, a small basket marked with the signet of the princess, and containing articles of no great value. This I took to Kantaka, and begging him to observe the strictest secrecy, made him believe that the princess had sent it to him. He was even delighted when another day I brought him a dirty dress, telling him that she had worn it. Finding him quite ready to believe this and convinced that she was in love with him, I kept up an imaginary correspondence, bringing very loving messages from her, which I invented and receiving many from him in return, which I took care not to deliver. His presence, of course, I kept for myself. In this manner, I have raised his hopes very high and to encourage him still further, I said, I have heard 
from a learned astrologer with whom I am acquainted that you have certain marks upon you which indicate that you will one day be a king. This love on the part of the princess tends to be the fulfillment of the prediction. You are, therefore, on the road to fortune, if you have spirit enough to pursue it. All you have to do now is to obtain a secret interview with the lady, and rest will follow in due time. But how can I manage this? he asked. The wall of the garden, I replied, communicating with the princess's apartments, is separated from those of the goal by a space of a few yards only. You could not get over these walls, but you might make an underground passage and slip in unobserved, and I will take care that there shall be some one to receive and conduct you to the princess. Then once with her you are safe, for all her attendants are attached to her, and not one would betray the secret. But how can I make this underground passage? he asked. I cannot take it myself, or employ workmen. Have you no clever thief here? I replied, accustomed to such work. Well, well suggested, he answered. I have just the right man. Who is he? I asked. I said, that man who has stolen the magic purse, said he, if he will set to work with a good will, he will soon dig his way through. Very good, I answered. You must persuade him by promising to let him go when the work is done but it would never do for him to be in secret. Therefore, when he has finished, put on his fetters again, and report to the king that he is exceedingly obstinate, that you have tried all other means to make him confess, and that nothing remains but to put him to torture. No doubt the king will give orders accordingly, and you can easily manage so to inflict it, that he shall die under it. When he is dead, your secret will be safe. You can visit the princess as often as you like, and doubtless in the end the king, rather than disgrace his daughter, will consent to your marriage, and, as he has no other child, will make you his successor. With this proposal he was quite delighted, and has been treating you well, that you may have strength for the work. He intends to ask you to begin tonight, and has sent me to persuade you, believing me to be devoted to his interests and looking forward to some great reward when he has got his wish. Having heard this from the old woman, I gave her great praise and said, Lose no time. Tell him I am ready to work. After this, Kantaka came to me, told me what he wanted, and swore a solemn oath that I should be liberated when the work was done, and I, in return, swore to keep his secret. Then he took off my fetters, I got a bath and a good dinner, and presently set to work in the dark corner under the wall. Soon after midnight the work was done, and an opening made into the courtyard of the women's apartments. Before returning, I thought to myself, this man has sworn an oath which he intends to break for the preservation of my own life, therefore I shall be justified in killing him. Having formed this resolution, I went back to the prison where Kantaka was waiting for me, he told me it was necessary to replace my fetters for the present, and I appeared to acquiesce. But as he was stooping to fasten them, I gave him a violent kick, and before he could recover himself, I snatched a short sword, which he wore, and cut off his head. I then returned to Sringalika, who had remained in the prison, and said to her, I am not disposed to have had all this toil for nothing.
Tell me the way into the ladies' rooms. I will go there and steal something before I can make my escape. Having received her directions, I passed again through the tunnel which I had made, came up into the courtyard, and from thence entered a large lofty room lighted by twelve lamps where a number of women were sleeping. There on a couch ornamented with beautifully carved flowers and resting on lion's feet I saw the princess, covered only by a thin silken petticoat, half sunk into a soft white feathered bed like a lightning on an autumn cloud. Fast asleep, as if wearied by much play, she lay in a very graceful attitude, with her delicate ankles crossed, her knees slightly drawn up, one lovely hand laid loosely on her side, the other beneath her head, her full bosom slowly heaved up, slowly heaved by gentle breathing, illuminated by the ruby necklace strung on burnished gold, the top knot of her loosened hair hanging down like some graceful flower, her lips so bright that the opening of the mouth could hardly be distinguished, her features in calm repose shaded by her lovely ringlets. I had entered so softly that no one was disturbed, and I stood gazing for some time lost in admiration of her beauty, quite forgetting the purpose for which I had come. I thought she is, after all, the lady of my heart. If I do not obtain her, Kama will not suffer me to live. But how can I make known my love to her? Were I now to wake her, she would start up with a cry of alarm, and I should probably lose my life. I must think of some other way of letting her know my love. Then looking round, I saw, laid on a shelf, a thin board prepared for painting, and a box of paints and brushes. With these I made a hasty sketch of the princess as she lay, and of myself kneeling at her feet, and underneath it I wrote this verse. Of thee, thy slave, in humble attitude, thus prays, Sleep on, not worn like me by a pervading love. I then painted on the wall near a pair of chakravakas in loving attitude, gently took off her ring, replacing it with mine, and slipped out without disturbing any of the sleepers. There was at that time among the prisoners a man named Sinhagosha, formerly a chief officer of police, but now imprisoned through a false accusation made by Kantaka. With this man I had already made acquaintance, and I now went to him and told him how I had killed Kantaka with his consent. I went forth from the prison and walked away with Sringalika. We had not gone far when we fell in with a patrol. I thought to myself, I could easily run away from them, but what would become of the poor old woman? She would certainly be caught. Hastily determining, therefore, on what was best to be done, I walked right up to them with unsteady gait and idiotic look and said, Sirs, if I am a thief, kill me, but you have no right to touch this old woman. She, perceiving my intention, came up and very humbly said, Honoured sirs, this young man is my son. He has been for some time confined as a lunatic, but was supposed to be cured, and I brought him home yesterday in the middle of the night. However, he started up and calling out, I will kill Kantaka, and make love to the king's daughter, rushed out into the street, 
I have at last overtaken him, and I'm trying to take him home. Will you be so good as to help me, and tie his hands behind him, that he may not get away again? As she said this, I called out, O old woman, whoever bound a cart or wind, shall these crows catch an eagle, and started off at full speed. She, renewing her entreaties, begged them to pursue me, but they only laughed at her and said, Do you think we have nothing to do but to run after mad men? You must be as mad as he is to have taken him out. And so they went on their way. I stopped when I found I was not persuaded. She soon overtook me, and we went to my house, to the great joy of my wife, who had scarcely hoped for my deliverance. In the morning I saw Dhanamitra, told him what had happened, and thanked him for following my directions so punctually. After this I went to the forest to see Marichi. I found him restored to his former condition, and able to give me the desired information. From him I learned that you would be here about this time. In the morning after my escape, Sinhagosha informed the king of what had happened and how Kantaka had been killed when about to enter the princess's apartments. Being found to be innocent of the crime of which he was accused, he was appointed governor of the prison in Kantaka's place. Before the underground passage was filled up, he permitted me to pass through it more than once to the princess who was favorably disposed towards me through the picture and verse, and still more by all that Sringalika had said in my favor. No great search was made after me, and by keeping quiet and going out, only at night I escaped further arrest. You know how Chandravarma besieged Champa and how Sinhavarma was defeated and taken prisoner. When I heard this, and how the conqueror intended to force the princess to marry him, I went to Dhanamitra and said, Do you go about the ministers and officers of the imprisoned king and the principal citizens and tell them to be ready to attack the enemy as soon as they hear of the death of Chandravarma? I will engage to kill him tomorrow. How Dhanamitra has performed his part you have just seen. As to myself, I put on a dress suitable for the occasion and as many persons were going in and out of the palace, managed to slip in unobserved and get very near the intending bridegroom, suddenly stretching out my arm as he was about to take the hand of the princess, I gave him a mortal wound with a sword, then saying a few hasty words of encouragement to her, I defended myself against those who endeavored to seize me till I heard your welcome voice, deep as the sound of thunder, and had the happiness of embracing you. Rajavahana, having heard the story, said, You have indeed shown wonderful ingenuity and courage. Then he turned to Paharvarma and said, It is now your turn. And he, having made due salutation, thus began. End of chapter 6